Good morning. That, um, who are you and what are you doing here? You guys may be asking, what are you doing here when you see me come up front? <laughs> but the doors are shut and you're here. I, um, that fits in well with what Bill's going to be talking about, too, coming up. So I appreciate Kevin and Simeon doing that skit, playing in with that. We, um, Bill talked in December about who you are when you think of in light of the Christ child coming, who the people were that greeted him. And I thought at one time a few months ago, Bill asked me if I'd do the service, and I thought that might be a good topic to talk about Ephesians and who we really are in Christ. And as I reflected on it, I thought, now I want to focus on that second question I think is pertinent. What are we doing here? And the, the thing I wanted to reflect on was um, a year ago, uh, my son Josh and I had a chance to go to Turkey and see what happened with the ancient church in Turkey, which at that time was called Asia Minor. So I wanted to focus on, on that for the talk today. Some of you might know me, some might not know me, but uh, I know sometimes when you see people, you think, boy, that person's got everything normal. I wish my life were normal. And so I thought, well, okay, I'll look through my house and find out all the things that are normal about my house I can show you guys. And I came up with the only normalcy I could find in our house was down in the laundry room, the setting on the dryer. If your family's like mine, that's probably true with you too. That normal is really just a setting on a dryer. For the early church, that was true too. They didn't have anything that was special or dynamic um, in and of themselves, but I can talk a little bit about how they were, how they impacted the world in unique, in unique ways. What I'd like to do is start with my testimony about how my life was turned upside down. See, I, didn't, I was raised in a large family. There were 12 of us, and um, we, we weren't, I didn't, wasn't raised in a Christian home, but um, I had something significant happen in my life, my whole family's life, when um, I was a teenager, and we had, I had one sister, Marilyn, that was 21, and she came down with cancer. At the time, I was a little naive. I didn't realize it was terminal. Um, and then, so she was, one summer, she was in the hospital toward the end of her life. She was in the hospital um, that whole summer. And then, as a as, um, sequence of events would have it, my father had a bad heart. He had a heart attack and a diabetic seizure, so he got put in the hospital, a separate hospital. So my mom was juggling between two different hospitals at the same time that summer. And then um, I said there were 10 kids in my family, 12 of us in the family, and I had a younger brother, and his brothers will be. Sometimes we're roughhoused a little bit. And through a sequence of events that I may or may not have been associated with, um, he put his hand through a window and cut up his arm. So he had to be taken to an emergency room. He was at a third hospital. That summer, my mom was a real trooper. She was going from one of three hospitals. She'd make her rounds today. She's kind of like a doctor, checking on the family. Um, my, uh, my dad and my brother recovered, and they came home. Unfortunately, my sister passed away that summer. And when I looked at that, that caused me to reflect and say, boy, I don't know what happens to me after I pass away. And so I kind of investigated a little bit as I could on my own and didn't really find any answers right that summer, but it started that whole process of thinking through what happens to you after you die. They, um, so I went, after that, finished my high school years, went away to college. 
and got involved with some of the wrong groups at college, got involved in the party scene, and there was one gentleman that took an interest in me, though, and started sharing the gospel with me. Ended up, um, he led me to Christ, and he also, more than that, he was um, involved with a group called the Navigators on campus, which was a great group, and got me involved in a community, a Christian community there on campus. And they, um, as I started to become a Christian, a lot of the other things I used to do started to drift away. I noticed a lot of the relationships I had with friends, not all of them, but a lot of them, started to break down because we didn't share things in common as much anymore. And so some of those relationships started to go away. So I was grateful that um, Ed introduced me to a community of Christians. I remember that first year I went home. Like I said, I didn't come from a Christian family, and our family was pretty, uh, pretty much spoke their mind usually. So I went, went away at Thanksgiving, at Thanksgiving, and um, I didn't expect people to be excited or even to encourage me in my Christian faith, but I didn't expect what happened at Thanksgiving. And that was when my sisters started, to, when she found I had become a Christian, started to, at the table, started to tell, tell me how much she hated Christians, how much they destroyed cultures, how they, how they had such a negative impact on the world. And I, some of her perspective, I know where she was coming from, but um, then my dad, I had purchased a Bible. Actually, it's the one I still have. I purchased a Bible. I remember dad asking me, how much did you pay for that Bible? My dad grew up in the Depression, so everything was a monetary thing. And he, he had seen people that had Bibles before, and I told him how much I bought it and stuff. And he said, how much do you think you'll use that Bible? So I, I didn't have a social network at home that encouraged me to pursue things of God and grow in my faith. So I was fortunate I had that at, at school. I had that subset, and that became my community. That became the thing that encouraged me in my walk with the Lord. So those other social groups, and some of them were right that they should fade away. Some of them, I may have made mistakes, but some of them, um, I needed to get out of those relationships. Um, but it reminds me of what, John, what Jesus said in John, where he said, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. That in the, in the environment that the early Christians were in, in Asia Minor, they were in a Roman environment, and Rome was very stratified. You had to be the right social class to do the different things. So there were slaves, there were free men, and went all the way up, there were eight or nine major categories, all the way up to senators. And if you weren't part of that, you didn't participate in the things. So if you weren't born a senator, you didn't go participate in the government. If you were born a slave, you didn't have any rights of a free man. And the Christian church came along and said, this isn't the way Christianity works. We're the, you guys probably heard the grounds all level at the cross, that, that basically the church didn't recognize those stratifications and it, it impacted the world. So what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about the culture the church faced, the early church faced. And it was... Um, I'm just going to talk about two of the cities, but one thing I encourage you to do, I'm going to talk about two cities that are mentioned in Revelation, and sometimes we read Revelation and we think just in futuristic, what's going to happen when Christ returns, or how did John in the first century describe a nuclear missile or a Black Hawk helicopter? And what I'd like you to do is just think for a minute, these were written to real churches that had real struggles, and that's the context of what John was first written to. 
It may also have a dual prophecy. That's fine. But it was really written to real places that had real struggles. So I can talk a little bit about two of those cities. We, when we went to Turkey, we had the chance to visit, it was probably 15 or 20 different cities. And this was, these are symbolic of, or uh, representative of what happened in those different cities. The first one's Pergamum. It's up there on the screen. Pergamum was a city that if you put it in context of the United States, Think of Washington, D.C. Rome was ruled from uh, Idli, Rome, Italy. The Roman Empire was ruled from Rome, Italy. But Asia Minor was so large, and it was taken over from the Greeks, that they had a provincial capital there, which was Pergamum. They had special rights being a provincial capital, but it was like the D Washington, D.C. of Asia Minor. First thing we noticed when we went there is there were temples all over the place. I'll just talk about a few of them. There was a temple to the god Zeus, and um, I don't remember a lot of my mythology, mythology classes from college, but Zeus was the head Roman god. He was called king of kings, lord of lord, creator of all. He was um, worshipped there. He had a temple there, um, one of the largest temples to Zeus in the known world at the time. Then you go up the hill just a little bit from him, and there was a temple to Athena. Athena was the god of wisdom. And people thought that one of the things they worshipped was wisdom and knowledge. And one of the largest libraries in the civilized world was in Athena. It was second only to the library in Alexandria. The, um, another temple that was there was a temple to Trajan. Trajan was the Roman emperor. And what happened was, originally, emperors in Rome were just like the president. And then, after a while, these Roman emperors started to say, you know what, we are gods also just like the Egyptians had done. They said, we're not just a ruler, we're a god. And so they built temples to the Roman emperors, and Trajan had a huge temple built there on top of the, the very cusp of the hill. And Trajan was called the Prince of Peace. He promised Rome's peace if you followed him and worshipped him. There was another temple to Demeter. Demeter was the god, you can think of the god of groceries. She was the god that provided all the grain. And she said she was the bread of life. And people came and worshipped her there. There was another temple to um, uh, Dionysus. Dionysus was the god of wine, merriment, and theater. And there was a huge theater there, impressive theater that they brought on earth. And she, the part that went on there was she offered living, she offered, she changed water to wine at the start of their ceremony. They'd put vats of water outside the temple, close the door, and then the next morning they were turned to wine. I'm saying this is sounding familiar. This all happened years before Christ came on the scene. The, everything she was in, the partying was the big thing there, and um, people would come there, and all sorts of wild debauchery and drunkenness would go on for days, worshiping in the aspect of worshiping Dionysus. Then there was another god named Asclepiophilus. He was the god of healing, and he had, there was a whole medical center set up there. But he offered what he called living water. And they had a bath that you'd go bathe in and would heal you. Sclesiophilus, the history of him, he was uh, the, the son of Zeus. And he came down to earth and he started doing all sorts of healing. He even raised someone from the dead. And the God said, that's enough of that. He... He, they killed 
Asclepiophilus. Three days later, they regretted they killed him, the Greek gods, and they raised him from the dead and let him sit on Mount Olympus at Zeus's right hand. So as you start to hear these stories, you say, all that sounds so much like what Christ talked about. And I know when I first started uh, on the trip, I was really puzzled and said, it almost sounds like Christianity just took and grabbed a bunch of the previous history. But in reality, when you look back at it, Satan made counterfeits long before Christ came. And so when the early church came and said, they, people would say, who do you follow? They'd say, we follow the Prince of Peace. And they'd say, oh, that's Trajan. We worship him up on the hill. Or we follow the one who gives living water. That's Asclepiopolis. He's down at the foot and you can get healing there. Or our God was raised in three days. Oh, so was Asclepiopolis. Our God is the bread of life. That's um, Demetrius. So, so there was a parallel. So the church didn't offer, in the secular mind, the church didn't offer anything new from those words. They, um, and that was part of the environment they were faced in. When the church started in Asia Minor, estimates early on when John's letter was written in um, Revelation is about 5% of the population was Christians. Historical records indicate that they were probably 80 to 90% Christian within 125 years. And so the question is, you go into this very decadent society, and how did the church have such an impact that it changed? It didn't start and just keep everyone there, but it changed the world. Un, um, when I think back, there's two extremes that you can fall in when you think of response when I become a Christian, especially in an environment like that. I can be a contemporary Amish, where I'm going to just isolate myself completely. I'm going to have a Christian school, I'm going to have a Christian church, I'm going to have a Christian neighborhood, I'm going to move in just with Christians. I'm going to be completely isolated from the world around me. And you may be able to continue a relationship with God that way, but you have no impact on the world around you. On the other extreme is I want to have a complete impact on the world around me, so I become just like the world. I ape the world. I do everything the world does because the Nicolaitans, which talks about in Revelation, were people that said the spirit and what I do in flesh are, are different. They're separated. They don't affect each other. So therefore, I can partake in the, the drunken fest that goes on in the worship of Dionysus. I can go worship Zeus or go at Trajan and worship him as Prince of Peace and then show up at the Christian church on Sunday and worship Jesus. So those are the Nicolaitans over here. They, they didn't grow in their world or in their walk with the Lord and they didn't have any impact because they were no different than the world. So those are two extremes and I think what the church found was neither of those extremes were where God wanted them to, to camp out to have an impact. And I'll get to what they had. They had a dramatic impact, like I said, in 125 years. This very decadent society and if you look around, we think um, some of us are old enough or we see the reruns, the Leave it to Beaver days of 30 years ago. We're a long ways from that. But we aren't near in the opposition that this early church was. It started as 5% of the people in these decadent societies that had a major impact that changed the whole course of these cities. Um, one other city I'd like to talk about is Sardis. And so Sardis was a cool town all these were neat, unique towns, but there's a verse written to Sardis. So I'll give you a little bit of background about Sardis. Sardis was a 
ancient town. It was established in 1200 BC. Sardis was an arrogant town. They had a river nearby that they mined gold out of. They were a rich town. And uh, some of you may be familiar with the phrase, riches Croesus. Croesus was the king of Sardis. So they were very rich, wealthy, independent. Um, they were also very pagan. And one of the things they had, gymnasiums. So gymnasiums weren't a multi-purpose room like what we think of, or a room with basketball courts or volleyball nets. A gymnasium was the center of the Greek culture. And in the center of Greek culture, they focused on a few different things. One of the things they focused on was they focused on um, exercise and athletics. Because the Greeks said, it's all about me. It's all of my, my God. Um, your God's, your body's important. So they did exercise. They also had classrooms. It was free, paid for by the temple. That you take your kids and they'd go to classroom there. And they'd learn the Greek and Roman philosophy of the day. And then there were baths. It's like a health spa. They had cold baths, warm baths, and they had a heating system. We saw some of these on earth. They had piping system, they had a hot bath. So they had the spas. And all this stuff was done in mixed company. All of it, when the temperature was appropriate, was done in the nude because you don't hide your body. All of it was done, um, like I say, in mixed company. That was Sardis. That was the gymnasium, second largest in the known world. Next to it was built one of the largest synagogues in Asia Minor, right next to it. And you think, boy, why was that synagogue right in the midst there? Were they um, trying to have an impact in Sardis? And when you look at it, the thing I came away concluding was, no, I think they were the Nicolaitans. They had compromised. You go in there, and there's mosaics in the floor of the Sardis in the floor of the synagogue that have idols in there, have Roman eagles. There's carvings on the altar of a lion. And as we asked the guy what, what the lion represents, there was another temple about a half mile from here called the Temple to Artemis. Artemis' symbol was a lion. But Artemis was an ancient god that represented fertility. Also wine. They said Artemis invented wine. Um, in the Artemis temple, they had a temple. The temple was huge. It was um, 65 feet tall. You could fit a football stadium inside the footprint of the Artemis temple. The Artemis temple it was, when you think of Greek temples, it had all the debauchery that went on there. They had temple prostitutes that manned the, the um, temple. And then when um, they had a festival every two years, where all restraints were thrown off anyone that wanted to participate in the Artemis temple, all restraints. And they would have two weeks of drunken debauchery. And at the end of the two weeks, they would have a parade that went through the whole town. This is a large town. Hundreds of thousands of people lived there. Fifteen million people would pass through this town in a year's space. It was right on a main road. It was a major influence in Asia Minor. They would have a two-week festival. At the end of the festival, everyone that was a follower, uh, adamant follower of Artemis would go in the temple and they'd put on white robes. And then they would parade through town in their drunken rival, revival reviling, and when they got to the end of town, after they'd gone through the town, they'd go back in the temple and they would start to cut themselves and emasculate themselves and offer those up as worship to Artemis. And their white robes would become bloody. And it makes me think of everything revolved around them. Their life in Sardis, their life in Pergamon, any of the cities that you'd look at, it revolved around, the culture said life revolves around you. It doesn't revolve around God. And so the verses that stood out to me were in Revelation, Revelation 2.13. This is to Pergamum, 
And I'm sorry, yeah, this is to Pergamum, the Washington, D.C., with all the temples. Jesus said to the believers in Pergamum, I know you dwell where Satan lives. And I used to wonder, why did he say Satan lived there? And maybe it was because all the counterfeits that, that parroted what Christ really represented. Maybe it was because of all these temples. Maybe it was because of one of them, but I think it was accumulation of all of them. That they were all a counterfeit. They were all things that tried to take the, the representation of Christ and um, steal that. The other verse there is in Revelation 3-4. This is to Sardis. And this is just one of the lines to Sardis. says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. In Sardis with the arm... Artemis Temple, how do your garments get soiled? It's when you participate, when you join in and participate with that, that two weeks of debauchery that go on in Artemis Temple. So I, I look at those, and I, um, one encouraging thing about um, Sardis was this Artemis Temple was huge. It was, you could see it for miles away. We climbed a mountain not far from there, and you could, this thing stood out what they reconstructed. Um, it was huge and impressive, and right next to it, in the early church, there was a small church that was built right next to the Artemis Temple. And we looked at that and we said, is this like the synagogue? Did they just come here and compromise and become part of this whole thing? And we don't know for sure, but when we look at it, we don't think so. Because this church didn't have any of the, the stuff associated with it that Artemis had or any of the idols. And it made us think, maybe this example of how the church has an impact, where you're unique, you don't participate in the two-week festival, but you're right there where the hurting world is. They could have built their church up on the mountain, they could have built it out in the suburbs, but they built it right next to the Artemis Temple. And they didn't do it alone. One guy didn't go there and put his house, house there and put his whole family at risk. They built it as a community and had an impact. And like I said, Sardis was one of those cities that in 125 years went from 5% pop, Christian population to about 80 to 90%. So that focus of life revolves around you was um, in, dwelled in the people. The, the thing I like to look at, so we talked about all these temples, and there's a temple that turned the world upside down. And I'd like to talk to you about what that temple is. So um, they had all these great temples, and they were incredible when you look at them. They were beyond anything the early church could compete with. They couldn't build temples that would impress the people with stone and brick. But um, there was a temple that turned the world upside down. And that temple, Peter and Paul give us a picture of what Jesus meant when he said that temple would turn the world upside down. In 1 Peter 2.5, it says that we're living stones built into a spiritual house. Peter said that all of, he called all of us living stones. There's, um, I don't know if you knew this, but when they built the temple, Solomon's temple, they built it up on what was Mount Moriah, where Abraham offered, historically offered Isaac. They built the temple there. There was no, Solomon didn't allow any carving of the stone at all in the temple. It had to be done in the quarry. And then the stones were brought there. And I had an engineering background. And if I were doing that, I would have said, okay, guys, we're doing cinder blocks. We're going to, they're all going to be 12 inches wide, 10 inches tall, 8 inches um, long. And then we're going to stack them on top of each other and we'll make it so this thing's consistent. But they didn't do that. They carved stones and they carved them in the quarry for a unique position in the temple. So each stone was unique. Each stone was uniquely carved. And I like how Peter says that we are living stones. 
each of us are cut from the same rock in that quarry. We're cut from the rock of Christ. But we're each unique, and we're carved for a specific purpose to be built into that temple. And that's what I liked about this picture of this stone. You see one stone in the center there that's very unique, and it was carved. And it was carved, obviously, very much for that place where it's going. It had to fit in there. And so each of us are living stones. If we follow Jesus Christ, he called us, he called us to be unique, but he called us to be not stand out unique, not to be, I'm going to be unique, I'm going to go do my own thing. I'm going to be a speaker, I'm going to be an evangelist, I'm going to be a rock band leader, I'm going to do something, I'm going to stand up, I'm going to be unique. That's not the uniqueness he called us. He called us, it says, living stones, to be in his temple. Our uniqueness becomes unity with other people in the temple. The, um, the next picture has a picture of some of the young people, I'm sure, don't even know who these guys are. But it's got the Lone Ranger. Um, of course, they did a remake of that movie, but it was a flop. They <laughs> got the Lone Ranger, and the other guy's the Marlboro Man. And the point there is, Jesus never called us to be the Marlboro Man, to be Zorro, to be the Lone Ranger. He called us to be part of a community. He called us to be living parts of, a, of the church. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, it says, You all... Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? I memorized this a long time ago. I used to like it because I think, this reminds me that Holy Spirit dwells in me and I'm God's temple. And that's true, the Holy Spirit, if you've received Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in each of you. Um, Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God in whom you're sealed for the day of redemption. Ephesians 4.18 says, um, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit dwells each believer. But this is actually talking about a little bit different. You can see I, I put the word we in there. If, if Bill was preaching this sermon, he'd actually be able to say this one and get it right. He'd be able to say, you all are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Because that's what it is. It's you all. It's not you. It, that you there is plural when you look in the original Greek. G, Paul was saying, you all are living stones, you were made in a quarry, and you're made for the temple. And this temple is going to turn the world upside down. And it did. It turned the world upside down. They went from 5% to 80-90% Christian in a matter of 125 years. So how did they do that? Um, oh, maybe before I get there, I, um, some of you guys know I'm an APRS, and that's just a cool way of saying I raise bees. Um, I raise bees. And one thing I used, when I first got the bees, actually a friend and I used to joke about this, we'd say, long live the queen, because we thought the queen bee is everything. That's the focus of everything. And this year I realized the queen isn't everything. The colony is everything. As a matter of fact, it got to a point where I had one hive that was weak, and I killed the queen for the sake of the colony, so the colony would live. And I think of that, that's a good picture of the church. The church isn't a person that's up here, a person that's doing the music, a person that's up in front. The church is the community. And the community of the church is how the early church had an impact, is how Christ wants us to have an impact. Just like the bees, the queen, isn't, the queen has a function. Everyone has a specific function, but it's not the, the focus. And the results, some of the results of our unity, there's baharak is a word in Greek that means to praise or to bless. The root word means to bend the knee. I like that because when we bless God, before we can bless God, we have to bend the knee. We have to bow our will to God's will when we become a Christian. The other thing I like about that was the early church understood this was not only to God, but this was to each other. So when the, 
the early church had to bow the knee to one another. They had to be willing to be servant to one another, willing to do what was needed for those in, in the fellowship. If you can imagine, if you're sitting in Pergamum and there's temples all over, you're locked out not only of the worship, in those temples was all the social and economic stuff. So if you, wanted, if you had a craft, you were part of a, it was called a guild at the time, if you were part of a guild and you wanted to get the next job, you better participate in the parties that went on at Dionysus or you wouldn't get called. If you, wanted to, if you were a senator and you wanted a place of influence, you better go to the Zeus temple or you won't get the authority. So also, if you wanted to sell grain, someone might ask you, has this grain been offered up to Zeus? Has it been offered up to Trajan? No, we don't believe in him. We believe in Jesus. I'm not going to buy your grain because something bad might happen to me. I don't want to offend the gods. So as you can start to see, with the stepping out of the temple, people were isolated from not only worship, but economic system. And so they had to form their own sense of community. It's the only way they would survive is to form their own economic community. But they didn't close it in like a contemporary Amish what they did was they opened it up to everyone. We're going to be unique, but we're going to be right here in the community and be impactful. And so if you, if you understand that there isn't really peace with Rome and you want to know the Prince of Peace, you're welcome. If you're a slave, you can sit right here next to the senator that comes and worships with us because we don't identify stratification like that. We don't recognize that. So it was unique that way. And it reminds me of a couple of verses. I'm going to go ahead and read these. John 17, 23. And this is Jesus in the upper room. He's just hours before he's going to die. And he's praying for his disciples. And he says, I and them, um, I and them, and thou and me, he's praying to the Father, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know. I thought, boy, that's a good Good summary that Jesus gave us just before his death. If you knew you were going to die in three hours, what would be the last things that you'd want to tell people that you're trying to influence? Jesus said he prayed that they would be one because that's how the world's going to know that he is the Christ. The other, the other verse there, John 13, 34 and 35, and Bill quotes this one a lot. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as Christ has loved the church, so you love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. Their love would be unique. It wouldn't, wouldn't um, identify class stratification. It, wouldn't, um, uh, it would be accepting. It would be loving. Um, their love would be unique, and it would be the thing that would identify them as different from the world. So those are the things, when we talk about the temple turned the world upside down, the temple wasn't a physical building. It was a church that became part of living stones that was so impactful, it turned the world upside down. The interesting thing, when you look at these cities, um, we visited a bunch of temples, probably a couple dozen in all these different cities we went to. And in two weeks of looking at those temples, I didn't find one convert to Dionysus or one Zeus convert. Because those are just relics. Those are, they're broken down. There's nothing there. But Jesus had a bigger picture. It wasn't a structure. It wasn't a building. It wasn't a program. It was the church responding in love to one another and unity to one another. So he, um, oftentimes Bill will talk about, well, what are the next steps? So the next steps, why are the next steps based on this? Um, 
One next step might be if you've never made a decision for Christ that you, you continue to investigate that and you come to a point where you recognize that Jesus died for your sins and you, you bow the knee to him first. That's the first step for all of us. Ne- another step might be maybe you've never participated in the community. You've just come here on Sundays but never really participated in the community. So the next step might be you participate. Maybe a next step is you join a small group. They're going to be starting those back up in January and you become part of a smaller group of community. Maybe you have a dynamic small group, but you have neighbors that don't know the Lord or friends at work that don't know the Lord. Maybe the next step is for you to invite some of those people in that they could see not just your life, but see the life of the community of believers together. Maybe your next step is to, um, to serve in a more dramatic way in the church. All of us have a next step, all those next steps involve one of two things, I think. They involve building one another up and reaching out to those around us. But we do them in concert. We don't do them separate. We don't go out and send someone to be a missionary off to the people in XYZ town and go by themselves and be an impact. God didn't intend it that way. He intended us to be a temple, and the temple, his house, to be an impact through living stones. So what I'd like to do is close out there. I'm going to just pray and then Nate and the band are going to come back up do a closing song. If you pray with me. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you saw that, um, that we needed something different, something separate um, from the world. And when I think back, the sad part about it is in a hundred years after those cities became predominantly Christian, they had gone back to 5%. They put their focus on programs, buildings, people, and lost, lost track of the thing that really had an impact in society. So pray that you'd help us to be impactful in our society around us, to be people that really want to worship you and want to see your name lifted up. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.